Welcome to the Urban Health and Wellbeing Program podcast. We are your hosts, Jieling Liu and Franz Gatzweiler. If you're interested in systems approaches and want to know more about the subject of urban health and well-being, in this podcast, we bring to you these insights through interviews with thought leaders and scientists in fields like urban planning, health, environment, and governance. If you like our discussion in this episode, please check out our other episodes and feel free to get in touch. You can find our contact and website information in the written introduction of this podcast. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome to a new episode of the Urban Health and Wellbeing Program podcast. I'm your host, Jilin. Chatting with me here today is Professor and Epidemiologist Christy Abbey from the Department of Global Health at the University of Washington, who has been conducting research and practice on the health risks and responses to global change, particularly climate change, for more than 20 years. Professor Abbey focuses on understanding the source of vulnerability, estimating current and future health risks of climate change, designing adaptation policies and measures to reduce risks in multi-stressor environments, and estimating the health co-benefits of mitigation policies. She has supported multiple countries in Central America, Europe, Africa, Asia, and the Pacific in assessing their vulnerabilities and implementing adaptation policies and programs. Professor Christy Abbey, welcome. It's an honor to have you on our podcast. Thank you for your interest. When we talk about climate change and human health and well-being, the most notable experience for all of us has got to be the heat wave of this summer. So even though we're only at the beginning of August, it feels like the heat wave has been around for a long time, from even back in March in India and Pakistan to June, July in North America, China, Japan, here in Europe, record-breaking heat waves um, causing wildfires, and also some medias are reporting increasing number of deaths and droughts. Uh, here in Portugal, we experienced 47 degrees Celsius, which was quite scary. So it's likely that this kind of extreme heat will continue to be or will become more frequent in the future, right? Professor Ebi, what is your view on this? Do you think it's very much so connected to climate change and what kind of health risks and vulnerability issues should we really give proper resource and attention to? The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has three working groups, and one of the working groups focuses on the climate science. Right. They recently concluded that climate change has increased the frequency, intensity, and duration of heat waves around the world. And all the projections indicate that that trend will continue and mm -hmm. possibly accelerate. So yes, we're in for a warmer future. Our summers will be longer, which many people will enjoy. They'll be hotter and they'll be heat waves a lot more frequently than there have been in recent decades. Heat affects our bodies in lots of different ways. And when we become too hot, we have a range of physiological mechanisms and behavioral mechanisms to help cool ourselves down. When we start feeling hot, when temperatures get really high, 
people go and try and find shade. They try and find some place to be cool. They find an electric fan. They find a way to try and cool themselves down. Mm-hmm. At the same time, physiologically, as our core body temperature starts to rise, we start having a range of physiological responses up to and including sweating. And so right. together, those mechanisms then try to keep our core body temperature within a pretty narrow range. Our core body temperature has to be within that range to protect our cells and our organs. If that core body temperature gets outside that range, then we start seeing impacts on our cells and our organs. After a heat wave, when one looks at the number of excess deaths, about half of those are due to cardiovascular causes. These are people who mm-hmm. die from a heart attack who wouldn't have had a heart attack otherwise because of the impact of heat on the heart. And so it's really important that we do protect people who are most vulnerable. And mm-hmm. keep in mind that almost all heat-related deaths are preventable. Nobody needs to die in a heat wave. So you've talked about the most frequent causes of health risks related to heat is vascular condition of people. That sounds to me like the health precondition. Is there any other precondition, social or economic, that can put people more at risk than others? There's a long list of people and places that are more vulnerable to higher temperatures. Right. The studies show adults over the age of 65 are particularly high risk. People mm-hmm. with underlying chronic medical conditions, mm-hmm. pregnant women, there's a growing number of studies showing that exposure to heat waves towards the end of pregnancy for pregnant women can lead to low birth weight babies. Outdoor workers, of course, are at higher risk. Babies under the age of one, people who take mm-hmm. certain prescription drugs because some drugs reduce the ability of your body to sweat. People who live in regions in the United States, we have regions that were intentionally marginalized, where there was an active effort to keep particular citizens from being able to access mortgages. And part of that process means that those areas have fewer trees. And so they're Uh hotter than the surrounding area. And you see that in many cities, that the poor and marginalized live in places that are hotter than the rest of the city, and so therefore are at higher risk. And of course, all these risk factors are not independent. When you look at the poor and the marginalized that live in hotter regions, they also tend to have higher rates of chronic disease. So they're at much Mm -hmm. higher risk during a heat wave. And then depending on the characteristics of a city, in many cities in the US, certainly the city I live in, we've got a large population of unhoused, and they are at higher risk. When you look at heat waves in Europe, for example, there have been issues in Portugal about tourists and how do you reach out to tourists when they don't speak Portuguese and don't know how and don't necessarily pay attention to the broadcast meteorologist. So there's a wide range of people that need to be considered and heat wave early warning and response systems need to think about within the local context, what's the best way to reach people make sure they have the information and the access to services that need that they need. Great. Thank you for listing this uh, range of vulnerable communities.
So you also mentioned about the IPCC assessment report, the newest one, and uh, through working groups. And you are among one of the working group. In fact, you are the lead author of the report, uh, at least for the chapter seven on health and well-being and the changing structure of communities. So let's discuss some of the key findings or the summaries of this chapter. And when I read it, one of the summary is about how climate hazards is a growing driver of involuntary migration and displacement and are also a contributing factor for violent conflict. So what kind of violent conflict is this referring to and how is climate hazards contributing to that? When thinking about conflict, displacement and migration, one has to consider a very broad range of interacting factors. There is rarely, if ever, one particular driving force that mm -hmm. governance issues interact with a changing climate, interact with underlying challenges. When one thinks about war, conflict, migration, one needs to take into account a broad range of factors. It's rare, if ever, that there's one driver. Climate change is a stress multiplier. So looking at particularly vulnerable regions where you already have some kind of low-level conflict going on, challenges with governance, that climate change can exacerbate that. So when you think about how climate change can increase drought in some regions, thereby increasing food insecurity, in places that already have simmering levels of conflict, for example, then conflict, then the conflict can be really exacerbated by climate change. And so I know this is an area in which people have a lot of interest. It is important to take into account the other factors that are important because as we look into a warmer future, what we want to do is reduce the impacts, reduce the additional stress that climate change has in vulnerable regions and look at ways that food security can be increased, for example. Look at ways in places that are becoming too hot and dry for agriculture. If there's other ways for people to stay in place because people don't want to move. By and large, individuals want to move, but people like to stay around their family and their friends. And finding ways that governance can be improved, food security, water security can be improved, so people can stay in place would be the ideal situation. I see. So we branched out from heat waves to talk about different impacts of climate change. And you mentioned drought, you mentioned potential tension to food security. We also mentioned wildfire. So besides the impact on health from heat wave, so maybe a heart attack, what other kind of health risks that are longer term or more complex in terms of how climate change will impact on our health? There's a long list of health outcomes that are climate sensitive. Any health outcome that's climate sensitive could be affected by climate change doesn't mean that it will, but it could be affected by climate change. Some of particularly high concern are undernutrition. And that comes both from the impact of climate change on crop yields, as well as the impact of carbon dioxide on the nutritional quality of major cereal crops. 
Together, those will be affecting millions of people around the world. Other extreme events, we've seen flooding. There's heartbreaking stories this week about flooding in the United States. As the temperatures warm, warmer air holds more water. And so there has been an increase in heavy precipitation events, which can, of course, then lead to flooding. There's a wide range of infectious diseases, everything from diarrheal disease to diseases that are carried by mosquitoes and ticks, diseases such as dengue fever, malaria, West Nile virus, and others are projected to increase in most places with a change in climate. In some places for the vector-borne diseases, the temperatures are projected to become too hot and too dry for the mosquitoes or for the ticks. But in most places, the projections are for increases in the geographic range, the seasonality, and the intensity of transmission. There's a range of respiratory diseases that are projected to increase because of increases in air pollution and because of increase in aeroallergens. And as you think about all of the different climate-sensitive health outcomes, you can see that there's a very long list. And it's a lot for ministries and departments of health to manage. One of the reasons that there has been less discussion about some of these is not because of lack of interest, it's because of lack of funding. There is almost no funding from medical research councils around the world to take a look at these. And there's very little research funding and implementation funding under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. When you look at the adaptation funds under the convention, less than half of 1% has gone to health. So the needs are very large, but there are inadequate human and financial resources to better understand the magnitude and pattern of risks and to better understand effective and efficient options to reduce those risks. In your view, is it simply a lack of resources or a lack of funding or is it more of a matter of uneven distribution or unfair distribution of resources? And uh, why is that? Is it about somehow there is a missing part in terms of language or communication in order to convey that sense of importance or sense of urgency of understanding health consequences to policymakers? or there is sufficient communication in your view, but somehow because of the, the kind of uh, time-bound limit of decision-making and time-bound limit for many of the private sector practices, therefore the lack of resource. It's not an either-or. The major challenge is lack of resources. When you look within a country, the Medical Research Council is the entity that is supposed to be funding health research, and they are not prioritizing climate change and health. So the funding levels are very, very low. And it's not because of lack of awareness. Presidents and prime ministers talk about climate change and health. There's high-level awareness at the level of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. But there is a lack of allocation of investment by the medical research councils and within a country, the Ministry of Health sometimes does both public health and health care. In some countries, that's kept separate. And the funding there is completely inadequate. 
we saw all of that with COVID. We saw how our health systems are extremely stressed. And there has not been allocation of resources. When you look at other sectors, there's been allocation of resources under the Framework Convention adaptation funds to water, to infrastructure, to agriculture, recognizing that the countries need those resources to be able to conduct vulnerability and adaptation assessments, to be able to develop national adaptation plans, and to begin implementation. But the funding hasn't gone to health. I see. And in your view, what does it need to change this to attract more funding? There has to be a commitment from these various entities that health is a priority and make sure that those funds are allocated. Mm -hmm. From what I am seeing, this is almost like against the individual nature concerning our own health. So why is it that collectively this is failing? It's not easy to understand why it's failing. One hypothesis is when you look at the medical research councils in particular, they're run by medical people and have a medical model view of the world, which does not particularly include environment. It's been a struggle for many years to have funding on, for example, air pollution. That's taken more than 20 years to bring out awareness that seven million people die needlessly every year from air pollution. And so it did take a very long time. Under the convention, when you look at countries' nationally determined contributions, most countries put health down as a priority. And yet it does not happen to be mm -hmm. a priority when you look at the funding under the adaptation funds. How to make that change is a really good question. Now, at least some parts of the world are stepping out of the pandemic, so to say. At least uh, from this summer, it seems to be. Do you think there is some kind of positive lessons learned we can tease out from pandemic control to address the health risks by climate change? Yes, there's lots of lessons that can be learned. The first is our health systems are weak and need to be strengthened. And they need to be strengthened in ways that collaborates with other sectors. So that we look at the upstream drivers of health. We make sure that people have access to safe water and improved sanitation. Make sure that people have access to food security. And that requires collaboration with other sectors. And that means working at the national level with the climate change team across the country. That most countries have a climate change team that reaches across ministries and sometimes then reaches down within the country. And so making sure that health is an integral part of that is really critical. And finding ways for better engagement I basically said that, but it's having the investment, but it's also having the engagement and making sure that there are memorandum of understanding, there's long-standing cooperative relationships, that it's people's jobs to work across ministries and departments so that a more systems-based approach can be taken. Mm -hmm. So in the chapter seven of the IPCC report, another one of the executive summary says that key transformations are needed to facilitate um, climate resilient development pathways for health, well-being, 
migration and conflict avoidance. So what kind of key transformations, the transformational changes should we be thinking of? There's a long list in the chapter. The first is, as I just mentioned, strengthening our health systems because our health systems have a number of challenges that were made quite visible to all during COVID. All of the health risks of a changing climate are current problems. There's policies and programs somewhere about the major health risks of concern. But none of these were developed with climate change in mind. So they do not explicitly include climate change. And when you look at what's going on, much of what's being done with adaptation is fairly incremental, making small adjustments to policies and measures. And the transformation is a statement that we need to think differently, that we are facing a very different future, not just because of climate change, but because of urbanization, population growth, other global environmental changes mean that we do have to look at a much more systems level and think about what needs to be done to protect and promote health. At the same time, when you look worldwide, healthcare is responsible for about four and a half to five percent of all greenhouse gas emissions worldwide. And that's a significant contribution from a sector that's trying to protect people from the climate change it's causing by these greenhouse gas emissions. And there's lots that needs to be done in terms of reducing the emissions from healthcare and using this as an opportunity to increase the resilience of our healthcare infrastructure. Too many facilities are located in coastal zones subject to flooding, for example. And so we know that there's many healthcare facilities that are in very vulnerable places. And we know during extreme events that there are impacts in terms of the functioning of the health system and the ability of people to access the system. So finding ways to make our healthcare facilities climate resilient and environmentally sustainable is critically important. And that does require thinking differently about our facilities, not just as many places do put facilities on the cheapest land, but thinking mm -hmm. in the long term of what happens when you have floods, heat waves, storm surges, and how that's going to impact the functioning and access to healthcare. How do we redesign it so that it is energy efficient? And if you can design it so you have, for example, solar panels, then you're much more resilient to when the power grid goes out in countries where that right. is a regular occurrence. So there's quite a few activities that are needed in the transformation. And that can be accomplished working not only within health, but of course, if you're thinking about infrastructure, the departments, the ministries within a government that focus on infrastructure do the long-term planning. Mm -hmm. Yes, I very much agree with you. And thank you also for making the point about health infrastructures, its own emission and how they actually could also suffer the physical risks of climate change and become unusable or inaccessible for people who need them. And... I think that uh, from the pandemic, we also can tease out a lot of the lessons learned on the importance of infrastructure. And I think a lot of the early thinking, early response and control system are designed based on this concern that uh, we don't want people to come and overwhelm the healthcare infrastructure. On the other hand, 
What I've noticed, for example, from my research in China and my observation of China's climate change policies is that there are a lot of quite ambitious policies carried out both on mitigation and adaptation at the national level, both for emissions or for urbanization, infrastructure, urban planning, etc., Although when these plans are being introduced down to the provincial level or city level or even county district level, the appearance of the wording climate change or climate related becomes less and less. And some of the literature or some of the critique is that because climate change is still so large, so incomprehensible for non-experts, that introducing the concept of climate change will make people feel confused or that it's so overwhelming that people will reject to pay attention to this information. Coming back to my point, which is on the population side, is there anything that we can do to help people improve their awareness on climate change impacts? Or do you think that policies or those who are capable of influencing public agendas should make a greater effort in explaining climate change and linking climate change to the health experiences the population has been having? The answer to that question varies by country. Bangladesh has extremely high awareness about climate change. At the last conference of the parties, the independent TV stations in Bangladesh, four of them, sent reporters to the conference of the parties and reported every day on the negotiations. So Bangladesh has very, very high awareness. Many other countries also have very high awareness. And what you need to do within a particular country depends on that country and what works best within that local context. Oh, that's a fair answer. <laughs> In various of your previous answers, you mentioned the importance of governance, governance structure or new norms of, or new paradigms of governance. You mentioned about placing health at the center. The World Health Organization also has this health in all policies. That's great. And about governance structure, I wonder what your view is. Is it something that um, governments can do beyond making health priority according to its own country context? Is there something more, you know, cross-governments, multilateral collaborations or mechanisms could be designed for that? Many countries do have mechanisms for that. And it's acknowledging that health integrates all the other stresses going on in the society and that choices made in agriculture, in water, in infrastructure, all have impacts for health. Historically, decisions within those sectors were taken without talking with health professionals. It's not that they wanted to harm anybody's health. They were taking the decisions with the best of intentions, but didn't consult people in health. And the health and all policies is it's always a good idea to talk with the people who've got the expertise, that they'll bring up issues you probably didn't think of, they'll have perspectives that'll be really quite useful. And so thinking about strengthening those collaborative mechanisms across ministries and departments, and that's at all scales, so even at the local scale, so that when decisions are taken in one sector, they do protect and promote health 
and that health finds ways to amplify those helpful messages so that there'll be greater uptake of whatever the policy is. And it is just a recognition that we've made a lot of advances over many decades in working towards the society we have today. But to be sustainable and resilient, we have to think about a future that is systems-based and much more collaborative than what we have now. Great. Thank you for your response to this. You mentioned the systems approach, and this is essentially what the Urban Health and Wellbeing Program is about. What is it exactly that your work connects to the Urban Health and Wellbeing Program? The current research that contributes the most is the work on heatwave early warning and response systems and working at different levels, local to national, on how to be better prepared for the heat and to think about the elements of heat action plans that are important and help to make the connections we just spoke about so that the infrastructure decisions support health, making sure, for example, the infrastructure decisions reduce urban heat islands, making mm -hmm. sure that they particularly reduce urban heat islands in places that are poor and marginalized so that the temperatures there are not so high, and helping make the connections working closely with people in the other sectors to make sure that we view, in this example, heat as an all-of-society problem. Right. In your view, which are the sectors that still could do a lot more in terms of, you know, to participate more and contribute more or even just grow more in their awareness in terms of health and climate change? That depends completely on the national context. There's countries where great strides are being made in countries where things could be better. And it has to do with historic legacy of the development of the country. For example, in the United States, we've got federal agencies that are looking at climate change, and each has a mission mandate. And when we think about the challenges of climate change as a whole of society problem, many of the issues we need to address fall between the mission mandates. Mm -hmm. and how to address that. Does it have to be done by making changes in Congress? It is an example that every country has issues where they know that they need to make some changes as they transform into a more resilient future. Great. Well, thank you so much, Professor Christy Abbey, for your great insights on health risks and climate change and what needs to be done to put this as more of a priority. Thank you for your interest. We hope you have enjoyed our conversation. The background music of this podcast is called Magic Forest, created and shared generously by musician Mike Huber under the Creative Commons license. If you want to join the conversation, add examples of systems approaches to urban health and well-being, or be part of the network, contact us. Again, you can write us an email or visit our website, which are available in the written introduction of this podcast. Please also follow us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Spotify. Until next time, stay healthy and well.